I think that there are things in Hereditary that are pretty funny. The head coming off is, it's like slapstick. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. Ari Aster burst onto the horror scene in 2018 with his harrowing film Hereditary, which starts out as a punishing portrait of a grief-stricken family and turns into a gory spectacle of supernatural violence. Aster immediately followed that up with his commercial and critical success Midsommar, a folk horror tale about a young woman who finds happiness with a Swedish death cult. Aster sat down with me and History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sayanga for revealing talk about his influences, our shared anxieties, the meaningless term elevated horror, and how, to him, both of his films are comedies. I'm Ari Aster. I wrote and directed Hereditary and Midsommar. And, uh, and here you are. And I'm here. <laughs> What's your relationship to the horror genre? When I was young, I was especially obsessed with horror films, especially when, you know, I think, I think when I was, it was between ages like 12 and 14 that I didn't really care about much else. I, uh, I would print up bad black and white images, you know, from the internet because my printer was only black and white of just, you know, different miscellaneous grotesque stuff. And, and I, I had a binder full of images from, you know, for, from horror movies. And I don't know what it was. It was some, some compulsion just to add to this thing that I never actually looked at or went through. I, I guess I've always had sort of this collector's thing where I just, I just need to amass as much as I can. But yeah, I, I watched everything I could when I was really, really young. I haven't been devoted to the genre as a, as a viewer in the same way since I was very young. But I've always loved it. And when they're great, they tend to be my favorite films. Did the scrapbook lean in a particular direction? Like, was it monster-heavy or gore-heavy? Uh, it was very, you know, gore-heavy. I think I was more drawn to Cronenberg and body horror. I remember I was really obsessed with, like, you know, the monsters from Hellraiser. But I was less of a monster guy growing up. When I was young, I, you know, I would just, again, compulsively draw these images of horrible things happening to people. There were always bloody images, like a face split open or something like that. And my parents were called into the, the principal's office, and they insisted that I see a counselor when I was younger because of just, you know, the things that I would draw. My parents at that point were, you know, totally used to it and, you know, knew that it was harmless or that I was harmless. I remember I was really, really traumatized by the movie Carrie and by Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. And I remember that the counselor I was seeing was alarmed by just how deeply those films scarred me. And he thought that that was indicative of something. So body horror films are all about death. Uh, was something going on there consciously or subconsciously? I've always been hypochondriacal and I can't say that that I'm preoccupied by death, but dying and like your body failing. And I think that's why Cronenberg is somebody who excites me so much is because he's so obsessively attuned to just like the different ways that your body can fail you or turn on you. The Fly is, you know, for my money, the best movie about AIDS. 
and of course, you know, he gets at it by making a movie that's not about AIDS. It's about a, you know, a man who's fused his genetics with a fly. And that's, that's part of the beauty of the horror genre. You can get at something that's maybe too upsetting to look at directly. And if you find the right metaphor, it becomes, if not palatable, then it becomes compelling and it becomes something that you can kind of give yourself to. What was your upbringing like? I was born in New York, but I grew up in New Mexico primarily. That was, that's where I spent my adolescence in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They live, in, they live just outside of Albuquerque now. I'm a family of artists. My mom's a poet who um, is also a visual artist, and my dad is a jazz drummer. I always had their support as far as the drive to make movies is concerned. So they're a film-friendly family. Film-friendly family, yeah. Yeah, just grew up waiting all week for Friday to come along because, you know, my mom and my dad would drive me to, to the video store and I would select my, my videos for the weekend and often would, would see a movie in a theater on, on Friday and if, if the movie wasn't good, I was very upset because I wasted my movie on a bad movie. It, it's, still, it's still the same way. <laughs> the same way. The label elevated horror gets tossed around a lot to describe films like yours, but haven't there always been ambitious artistic horror films? Yeah, it's nothing new. The term elevated horror is kind of obnoxious. Uh, I mean, even if you look at, God, what, 1968, you know, you had Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead and like, you know, Hour of the Wolf. And that's coming out the same year as, you know, the blood of Fu Manchu and, you know, the green slime, you know, it's so there are always exceptions to the rule of the schlocky horror movie. And there, and there have been for so long. Is Carl Dreyer's vampire, is that elevated horror? You know, like I, I, so yeah, I don't really know how to respond to the think pieces on the state of horror and elevated horror as though it's something that's happening this decade. And it's, and like, you know, who knew that, that horror films could be artful and, and thoughtful. You seem to pull in influences from all genres. Uh, are you conscious of these influences when you make a film? I become conscious of the influences more when I'm in post and when the movie's being released and I start to think about the film in a different way. I, like I'm, I take something of a more objective view of the thing and I start thinking about how this thing might be categorized and like where this might fit. And you know, some things are certainly deliberate. Like there are films that I'm, I'm kind of knowingly referencing here and there. But then there will be these like really obvious allusions to other films that I wasn't aware of. But clearly, those films are in my system and. And they're and they're showing up in the movie, but you know, I mean, with with Hereditary, I was just excited about the idea of making sort of a haunted house movie that just felt more personal and not more personal than other films, just just something that you know that I, where I was drawing from immediate feelings and and seeing how I can take this genre and take all of these, not necessarily tropes, but in some cases tropes, but, you know, just take this, like, structure, which is very sound, and then have that hold all of this messy material. Genre can be a really wonderful filter to pass more difficult material through. If, for instance, I decided to make Hereditary as, like, a kitchen sink family drama, you know, if I tried to do it straight, uh, one, it would be too exposing and I would probably get cold feet while making it. Exposing of your emotions, your emotions of the feelings that you put into it? Or? My emotions and just, if I really did what I wanted to do, it probably would have been not necessarily unwatchable, but just so bleak and, and whatever audience, you know, the film would have would be, you know, a very small number of people that would be maybe willing to subject themselves to that. Well, if you take out the decapitations, Hereditary is basically a Bergman film. Right. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, Cries and Whispers was a film that I was really thinking about while I was gearing up to make Hereditary, but mostly because that's my favorite film about dying and about death and a, like a hideously painful film, but also so beautiful. And, and it talks about that stuff in such an eloquent way. And another film that I was thinking about a lot when I was making Hereditary was Autumn Sonata, just in the way that he's diving into mother-daughter relationships in a really painful way. And, uh, and Autumn Sonata was a film that I showed my crew before we, we shot if Hereditary, you know, did not have those genre elements, and if it was not passed through that filter, I don't even really know what to point to, but it would have been really, it just would have been very hard, and I wouldn't have been able to do it. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the genre, for, you know, kind of opening that up for me. You know, I think part of the fun of making a film that is like straight horror, or if you're making a film in any other genre that has like a number of traditions, 
part of the fun is finding ways to beat a dead horse in a way that hopefully, you know, feels kind of urgent and immediate and brings things back to life. Because, you know, the reason that something is a cliche is because people have trodden over that territory so many times, probably because there's something essential there and something true. One of the first images that came to me when I was developing Hereditary was that of the dollhouse and that of the, you know, the replica of their house and this artist who was, you know, making these very true-to-life replicas of, like, the spaces in her life. That just felt like an appropriate metaphor for this film about, you know, a family that ultimately has no agency. And it's revealed, you know, over the course of the film, just how little agency they have. Ultimately, they are like dolls in a dollhouse, being manipulated by these outside forces and by this, this coven that, you know, even by the end of the film, we don't really get to know them. We feel them kind of floating around the periphery of the film the entire time. And there's evidence of them kind of littering the movie, but I wanted to always kind of keep it peripheral and have as little exposition as possible. I kind of had to betray that and give enough exposition to like, you know, give people the foundation they would need to understand what was happening. And so when those scenes come, I kind of ram as much as I can into it so we can just get it over with. But yeah, for me, the metaphor of the dollhouses was the thing that opened that movie up for me. And the first image in the film, pulling out of the window, overlooking the uh, the treehouse, and then we pan around the room and we alight on the the replica of the Graham family house and we push in to then kind of confuse the replica's status as a replica when we go into the room and reveal that the boy is, is sleeping in the bed. That for me was, was the first image that came to me for the movie and, and everything kind of came out of that. And that's, that's the first time that ever happened to me where you know a script kind of came out of an opening image. How did you create that atmosphere of trauma and dread on set? Well, you know, so much of that is actually sustained in post and sound design and score. As far as working with the actors, because especially on Hereditary, there was just, that was a heavy load for Tony and Alex and Gabriel to carry. You know, I think, I think the scripts made it pretty clear what was required of them. And before they came onto the film, we talked about it. And we talked about the fact that they, you know, they all kind of needed to jump off the deep end if this was going to work. And, you know, I was just very lucky in that I had these incredible actors who were game. And, I mean, just the way that Tony and Alex and Gabriel just threw themselves all the way into this movie, you know. I'm still very grateful to them. The movie never would have worked if they didn't really go there. And Alex, you know, was really beating himself up. He's pretty method in his approach. And Tony is just really... She's, she's on the other end of the spectrum where she, you know, she turns it on and she turns it off. But she had to go somewhere very real. Yeah, she's a consummate professional. On action, she dives in, and when you say cut, she's out, which is amazing to watch. Her sense of you know, craft is really, really intimidating. It all looks very carefully constructed. Do you storyboard everything, or do you leave room for spontaneity in the process? You know, I want to learn to leave more room for spontaneity. I don't storyboard, I shot list. And so before I talk to anybody, including my production designer or my cinematographer, I shot list the entire film, mostly just so I have a movie in my head that feels sturdy. So I feel like I know how I want to talk to them about it. And then I'll go through the shot list and I'll go scene by scene with my production designer and my cinematographer so that we all have the same movie in our head. And then we can talk about it and kind of play with it. But one reason that was very important on both films is because we were building everything. The house and hereditary, you know, all of that was built from scratch. The exterior of the house was an actual house in, uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah, but everything else was built on a soundstage. The downstairs floor, the, the upstairs floor, and the treehouse. The, the interior and the exterior of the treehouse were built. We actually built two versions of that because the treehouse up until the end is pretty small. And then that last scene, yeah, we wanted that to have like this kind of nightmarish... Uh, like Doctor Who's TARDIS. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we, we really had to figure out everything well in advance. And it was even trickier on Hereditary than with Midsommar because we needed to know everything we were building so that we could tell the miniature artists what they were building. And so we had Steve Newburn, who was also the prosthetics artist, 
in Toronto making all of these models for us while we were building our sets in Utah. He was never there with us drawing from, you know, anything physical. It was all, it was all about having the production design team and you know, the art director in constant contact with the miniature artists. And there was a lot of like frustration on both sides because it's such a difficult thing to achieve. It was very tight. And we shot all of the miniature scenes at the very end of the shoot to give the miniature artists time to actually build them. So that was the last week of the shoot. And they, they were being finished like the night before the camera was on them. Tell us about the famous scene where Charlie's beheaded like, and why that scene was necessary. It's Janet Lee being killed in the shower, right? I was excited about the idea of establishing one movie and then kind of violently taking a left turn and putting us on another track. And so I knew that uh, the film needed to be marketed as an evil kid movie. When you take off her head, you know, what, what's next? Like, where are we? It was fun to orchestrate that and try to make that work, presenting the red herring of the peanut allergy and... I guess it's something of a red herring. It's really a catalyst, given that it is what gets him in the car with her, you know, and they're hustling to get to the emergency room. And, and then there's the, the, uh, the carcass in the road that drives them off the road and the telephone pole ends up taking her head off. I think that might have been the only sequence that... No, we did two sequences that we actually storyboarded because we had to have a very, very solid grip on what exactly we were going to do there, especially because the nights in Utah in the summer are especially short. And so we did not have a lot of time to shoot everything. And I think in the shot lists, we had 39 shots to get, and we ended up only getting something like 28, given just how accelerated everything was and how little time we had to just get everything. And we were shooting with two cameras, you know, and then we had two dummies with detachable heads for Charlie. After the first take, we just didn't have time to use the second dummy. So the second dummy didn't even, we didn't even use it, which is crazy. Yeah, the sun was coming up and we had eight shots left that we had to get. So we had to move on and we got four of those. And ultimately we had what we needed. When you know that it's going to be that tight, you choose your favorites and you have the six that can go if they have to. And, and you insist that they won't, that you have to get them. And then, you know, then you don't. But At this point, Eli Roth joined us. Eli wasn't mic'd, so the recording gets a little noisier here and there. Our apologies. So horrific. And I'd love to know the reaction the first time you saw that with an audience, and they're so shocked. You're like, oh god, did I do something terrible? I do remember the first time I saw that with an audience. Maybe it was actually the second time at Sundance. It was a really wonderful experience. It was something like 500 people in the audience and nobody had heard of the film. And when Charlie's head comes off and you're just kind of left in the car with him with the engine kind of humming, you could hear a pin drop. And that was really exciting. And while Hereditary was kind of playing in, in theaters, I would often you know, go into different screenings to just sort of see how the audience was reacting to that sequence in particular. That was a really special experience. You use silence and just a few specific sounds in that sequence. You know, the goal was to make something that felt elegant and that had that feeling of whatever elevated is so that, you know, the head comes off, but it's, it's handled in a very kind of tasteful way. And part of the fun of that was knowing that we were going to stay with Peter for a very long time, go home with him, go to bed with him, and then drop the head eight minutes later. You know, it's, it's fun because that's where the rules of the movie start to get laid out, where, you know, it's like that's where we reveal what the movie actually is. And that, and that was the fun of it for me was, you know, let's make something that's kind of patient and slow and something that feels tasteful. But then there are going to be moments that are, by somebody's standards, tasteless and kind of confrontational as far as the imagery is concerned. It was a tasteful child beheading. Yeah. That's <laughs> very, very tasteful. But the jump, you know, the people are silent, but the jump comes on the, the first right. time she, she's in the car. The big jump. Yeah. Do you remember, like, well, the first time seeing that work? Because you're setting up that weird tick. Well, actually, and it's... you pay yeah. it off in such an ingenious way. Well, it's funny because at that same screening at Sundance, that scene where her head comes off, you could hear the pin drop, but then... It's true, that first click when Tony is driving away from Ann Dowd's house uh, and she gets to the stop sign and then the click happens and she is startled. Everybody jumped in the theater and I was really shocked at that because that actually wasn't designed to be a jump scare. 
It's amazing. You get the weirdest reactions out of it. You plan it, you plan it, you're like, oh, this is where they're going to scream. I know. And then that's the moment where everyone I saw it with in the theater, like, you're so stunned with silence, but that was the release. Everyone yeah. screamed at that. And I, I don't even understand it. I don't think that there's anything scary about the clicking sound. For me, that was a device. We needed something auditory that would bring us back to Charlie. We play a little bit with the refracted light, but you know, we needed something just kind of simple. And I was very uneasy while we were editing the film with that click. It, it, it felt kind of cheesy to me. It just goes to show you, you know, like you just don't know. Isn't it weird that the simplest stuff and often the cheapest stuff is the scariest? You play in these like incredible elaborate deaths and then it's just like a finger break or a nail or a car hit. There's something that's so simple that that's what the audience remembers. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's true what they say that, you know, like when, when you put the movie out, it's no longer yours. And that's why there's often a pretty bad depression when you finish a movie. I mean, oh, yeah. like both times, well, you know, w with Hereditary, I didn't really have an opportunity to indulge that because we moved on to, to Midsommar before we even released Hereditary. But when Midsommar came out and, you know, and I didn't have the next one lined up right away, like, man... Those were a bleak few months. It's depressing. It's yeah. hard to get off the ride. It's like being 200 miles an hour. I say attention is the most addictive drug of all. Yeah. And every day you have a million people asking you questions. It's exhausting and terrible, and it's, it's like scary and brutalizing, and you want it to be over, and then it's over. Bleak. I mean, I don't know if that's the same case for you. Like A lot, a lot of people just love it, like love production. Uh, Pre-production's fun, but for me, it's, it's really, really like... Every day that I go onto that set, it, it's like a funeral march. It's so stressful because you, because you have so much that you have to get done and how are you going to do it? And One of the ingenious things of Hereditary is the way, first you, the first decapitation, because you don't show it, you really trick the audience into thinking this is a tasteful film. Mm -hmm. But what you don't realize is that you're entirely being set up for Tony Collette's slow motion hand wire mm -hmm decapitation which is one of the most it's so it's one of the most upsetting disturbing images in movies period and you set the it's like this one decapitation the one that you don't want to see and then the one that we do see is so horrific that it actually talk about that like setting paint was that on, was that on purpose or did it just i mean yeah that was that was always part of the design we didn't really stray from the design much with hereditary except for the fact that hereditary was a lot longer like both films were much longer when we first put them together which i think is Talk usually the case wire cutting it's like audition and you have the best wire cutting oh man yeah audition the wire cutting on audition is amazing what is it kitty 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 yes so good which is what is that deeper 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 is that what she's saying yeah, oh, yeah it's great that's that's such an upsetting film so, yes, let's talk about Tony Klutz's famous beheading scene. And first of all, how did you achieve that effect? That was just one of those extremely technical exercises that, you know, you're putting Tony Collette, you know, on wires, and that's very, it's like very uncomfortable. She did a lot of wire work on that movie, actually. And then uh, we had a prosthetic neck made for her, you know, so that she could be pulling these wires and it wasn't actually digging into her, which was, you know, which is, you know, pretty important. And then just blood spraying and squirting. And, and it's funny because on set, you're just thinking like, this is just going to look so silly. And then, you know, it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Hereditary, you have this very uptight, restrained family disintegrate explosively. It's a surreal nightmare. Well, you know, it's it's sort of, you know, the movie's about a family that in many ways is kind of following each other into madness, especially Tony Collette's character and Alex Wolf's character. They're really kind of, they're really just sort of pushing each other there. And I was always very excited about the idea of the movie kind of losing its mind with them so that by the time you get to the end the fabric of the film has sort of like torn open and it's it's become something else and it kind of adopts this nightmare logic i love it when movies you know kind of embrace a more operatic sensibility for me why not just go off the rails and just go there you know
it was always fun to think about. It was always fun to think about just going up into that treehouse and having that giant mannequin with Charlie's decayed head on it and just, you know, kind of like not, not bothering with logic anymore. You know, you have the headless corpses that are bowing to the mannequin and then when he's crowned, he turns back and they're now bowing to him. And you know that you're going to be alienating like a, a, a large section of the audience and you know that people are going to kind of get off the ride at that point. But for me, it, you know, I, I just didn't care. It was, that was the, it just felt like where it had to go. Was the apocalyptic ending of Hereditary a cathartic release after spending so much time in the heads of that dysfunctional family? I tried to do the same thing with Midsommar. You know, the idea there was a breakup from somebody else's perspective, you know, is no big deal. And, you know, you should just kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get over it. But when you're in it, it's, it's like a death. It's like, you know, the world is collapsing around your ears. And so I wanted to make a breakup movie that plays the way a breakup feels, which is pretty apocalyptic. And for this one, I wanted to make a family tragedy, you know, that kind of took that platitude, you know, when it rains, it pours. When, in fact, it is raining and pouring, it feels as though you're cursed. And so then to literalize that and then just kind of like really run straight at that idea without really allowing my better senses to, you know, kind of stop me short... So you're really going for the emotional truth of it, the emotional expression. These are both very emotional films. I, yeah, I guess for me, it was important that, that the films make emotional sense as opposed to logical sense, which certainly I think applies more to Hereditary than even the other. But yeah, to make a film that, you know, ultimately is kind of possessed of the emotions of the characters. Well, in both Hereditary and Midsommar, you really put people in their characters' heads. Uh, use all the tools of cinema, uh, sound effects, music, and even silence to establish this extreme subjectivity. It's extremely cinematic. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. You use music. You use silence so much in Hereditary to get into Peter's head. Yeah. And, you know, with Florence Pugh, just that beautiful... It's almost like a lullaby, like you lull us into this false sense of beauty, this fantasy that she's in, but the music, just the dark tones that it takes, but you're really with her. It's, it's um, as she's going through the fields and the fluidity of the camera work, but you really get in their heads. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, as far as the score is concerned, I mean, I remember that when I was talking to Colin Stetson, uh, we talked a little bit about Toru Takamitsu and the scores he did for, you know, like Kwaidan and the Teshigahara films and, you know, and Colin Stetson is somebody, you know, who he is an avant-garde artist and his stuff is like so textural. If you've ever seen him live, it's, it's a really, it's like a very, very athletic thing, what he's doing. It's really something to see. You know, I talked to him about that I kind of wanted the film to feel evil, that I, I wanted to feel as though the film almost takes the point of view of Payman. It's like he's yeah, directing yeah. the movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you, feel, like you feel people like, thought the footage of the exorcist, people thought the prints of the movie themselves were possessed. Right. Do you have that feeling? And is is working with your composer coming from your father's jazz background? No. Or is it completely separate? Just coincidental. Yeah, not 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 really. But one of my favorite parts of the process is working with the uh, the composer. And specifically, you know, I mean, it was very different working with Colin than it was with Bobby in that, you know, Colin and I had like an email exchange. We only met once in person. I flew out to his house in Vermont one very, very snowy day and we talked for like three hours and I had to get back and fly back to New York. Those were very, very long email exchanges where I was, you know, I was giving him time codes for when, you know, this, you know, we need to hit this beat and this, and this beat and the score needs to change here. And he would send me back music. And it was really just a matter of the music was always right, and it was about how to make it, you know, dramatically right. And uh, um, and then with Bobby, I flew out there for a week after we had tried the email exchange thing, and it wasn't quite working. And then we found immediately that we had had a really amazing rapport, and and most of the score was finished in that first week. But the movie's but, it's it's dripping with atmosphere and mood. From the camera to the design, right from the opening frames. In, in Hereditary. In both films. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, it is a pretty ambient score, very brooding. You know, it's all in service of sustaining that feeling of dread. We always knew that the ending had to be different. The idea was to make that last sequence kind of exultant. 
and Zadok the priest, you know, the coronation theme was the reference, and that's what we were sort of playing that sequence against until, you know, Colin sent in his version. It was fun approaching that ending essentially from the point of view of, of the paymanists um, uh, and kind of treating it as a sort of twisted, happy ending. I say to them, it's, it's the perfect ending. To them, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a success story. Tell me briefly what Midsommar is about. About a young woman who suffers a massive loss in her life and loses her family. She finds herself in a a very serious existential crisis, and the closest thing she has to family is this, you know, pretty mediocre boyfriend who has been looking for a way out of the relationship and now feels trapped. And so he stays in for her sake, but his heart isn't in it. And so that's, that's, I guess, what is established in the prologue. And then we jump half a year later. This begins in the winter, and then we move to the summer. And the boyfriend, who is an anthropology PhD, is going with his friends, Swedish commune, hidden away in Helsingland, which is you know, in northern Sweden. And Christian, the boyfriend, he feels pressured into inviting Danny along with him. And she ends up finding in this community what might be a home. And of course, the irony is that they are a eugenicist community of murderers, but they're much more empathic, they're, they're much more compassionate. The idea there was ultimately that for the visiting men and the two British tourists who are also there with them, this is a folk horror film. But for Danny, this is a fairy tale. And ultimately, it's a perverse wish fulfillment fantasy. It's interesting that Midsommar and Robert Eggers' The Witch both end with disaffected young women smiling beatifically after joining murderous death cults. What's going on there? I I can't say. I mean, Rob and I are friends, but uh, yeah, I wrote that two years before The Witch came out. I'm not saying that they're influencing each other. I'm just saying there's something in the zeitgeist, basically, right? Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, for me, you know, the writing of Midsommar was pretty therapeutic. I was going through a breakup and was looking for uh, kind of an angle on a breakup movie. And I was approached by a, a Swedish production company that had read Hereditary. I hadn't made it yet. And they were looking to do a Swedish folk horror film that could be a Swedish-American co-production that riffed on Midsummer. You know, I like Wicker Man. I love Blood on Satan's Claw. I think Witchfinder General is pretty great. But, you know, I, I never would have imagined myself making one of those films. But it just, it really opened the whole thing up for me. And I just saw, I guess the metaphor there is sacrifice, right? The idea of you need to be able to sacrifice something of yourself in order to feed a relationship. And again, you know, it becomes quite literal. But I also, you know, I, I had a lot of fun while I was writing Midsommar thinking about 80s high school romantic comedies, actually. Like, I wasn't thinking about films like, you know, Friday the 13th or kids being killed off one by one. I was thinking about um, the done-to-death structure of a high school comedy where, like, you, you have the girl, you know, she's in love with the wrong guy and, you know, the whole time the guy who's perfect for her is right under her nose and is, you know, her best friend, but she just doesn't see it. And then at the end, she realizes that, you know, this guy's bad news and this is the one for her. And then at the end, she goes into her backyard and takes the shoebox filled with all those toxic memories, you know, from the wrong guy and then throws it into the bonfire and is liberated from that. And, you know, so I I had fun thinking about it in those terms and just like, you know, what's, what's like the evil version of that? Yeah, essentially like a malign John Hughes teen romance. I mean, of course, they're not teenagers. They're, they're in their 20s. It can be also be read as a pretty uh, a funny uh, satire of academia and academics. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've said this before, but, you know, for me, that there's nothing like two academics fighting over a thesis to reflect the meaninglessness of life. And so that, that for me is, I guess that's what that is. The first cut of Hereditary was about three hours long, like two hours and 50 minutes long. And then it, we got it to two and a half hours and I was happy with it. And ultimately we got that down to, you know, about two hours. The first polished, not polished, but like refined assembly of Midsommar was about four hours long. 
And then we got it to three hours, which felt impossible. And then I couldn't imagine getting it shorter. And then we, you know, we had to because that movie doesn't deserve to be three hours long. Uh, I don't think it does. Um, it was. Um, and so, you know, we had to get it down to about two hours and 20 minutes because with credits, you get about two hours and 30. And so I have a hard time really embracing the theatrical cut of Midsommar only because it's missing so much character detail. See, I only saw the director's cut, so... Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have problems with the director's cut, too, but... Of course. (laughs) Uh, But but especially the thesis stuff had to sort of, like, that was just, you know, low-hanging fruit as far as stuff that we had to cut. Well, that's the part where I thought, you know, Christian deserves to be murdered at this point, so, because he's such Stealing his friend's thesis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, he's a dick. There are a lot of ways you could look at, step back and see Midsummer as a comedy, I think, basically, like a sex comedy gone horribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see it as a dark comedy. I mean, I think that there are things in Hereditary that are pretty funny. Like, the head coming off is, it's like slapstick. I always saw Midsummer as being more of a comedy than anything else, but mostly because you arrive at this ending that by the time it arrives, like, if you have any distance from what you're watching, it's just, it's just very stupid. I love the idea of making movies that shouldn't really exist. And ultimately, you know, he's, he's stuffed into a bear carcass and he's uh, quote unquote banished to the deepest recesses um, by these people. And ultimately, you know, the, his crime is that he was a, a shitty boyfriend. Once we get to the ending, I'm, I'm usually chuckling to myself because it's just so, there's something silly about it. The scene where Christian is having sex with the young woman and they're surrounded by the chanting women is weirdly funny. When it was clear that the movie was going to get, you know, a wide release and wasn't going to be kind of... That was the scene that I made me smile, knowing that, you know, people who thought they were in for one thing are, you know... The, cli- the climax film. is going to be... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that the climax is really... It's just going to be, you know, this uh, absurd sex scene... How do you hope people will respond to the ending? The ending is designed to be cathartic. It's sort of like a poisonous catharsis, but again, it's meant to be very operatic. It's, it's meant to feel sort of uplifting, but I hope that people have to wrestle with it a little bit more in retrospect, given that, you know, Danny maybe has, yes, she's like found a home, but it's not perfect. And ultimately, you know, if this is a horror film, I have trouble with categorization, but if it is, then for me, it was always a horror film about codependency. So we have this character who, you know, at the very beginning of the film is in this dysfunctional codependent relationship. And then at the end, she finds herself in a much more functional, but even more codependent relationship. And maybe it's more insidious because of the fact that it's functioning in a way that will allow her blinders to be even more pronounced. Can I ask you about the uh, the evil forces controlling the family? It's like we're all just sacrificing a child to these gods yeah. in some strange way. Hmm. Evil, well... Or not evil. The families, no, yeah. To the families, they're not evil. To us, they're yeah. evil. But to the families, that's, that, that's what makes sense. That there's some strange force that controls the family to make them do these, what we see as unspeakable things, what they see as, as part of the natural, to keep the natural order. Yeah, let me see. I don't know if you just if there's anything about families or in in those movies, those types of stories that sparked your imagination or that you see like imperfect families. I always had the fear that someone's going to come with a chainsaw and chop heads off. Like, yeah, I came from for me came from like Holocaust stories that everything was fine and then you get thrown in the oven. The Nazis showing up, like I was terrified of that stuff. Yeah, it's kind of informed everything. Everything's going fine and then it's not. Yeah. I don't know. I just saw a connection into both movies. I didn't know if there was anything that drove that theme that you think about scares you. Yeah. I mean, it definitely scares me. I'm a very neurotic guy and I, I am hypochondriacal. I'm riddled with worries and there's something maybe, I'm not sure if it's liberating, but there's something maybe like relief. There's something therapeutic about inflicting all of these like worst case scenarios on these imagined people. I do feel like I wake up in the morning and I go through my days and there's like this like kind of like this white noise of just doom <laughs> that's you know underneath everything and I really wish that I could get rid of it. But yeah, if anything 
I've gone through life kind of feeling like the other shoe is going to drop. And I think with at least with these two films, I had the opportunity to just like get it over with. But, you know, for these people. So it's rehearsal for your death. I do the same thing. I <laughs> yeah. always feel like Eraserhead is David Lynch's terror of having a family and yeah. having mm-hmm. a baby. And I always feel like my suburban bliss growing up in the safest city in America and Newton was going to be interrupted. Like the Nazis are going to come and kill us and put us in ovens. Yeah. All I heard from my parents was that's going to happen. Yeah. So there's just something where you, you I can't even let myself enjoy something good because I think, oh, now we're going to die. Yeah. Like, no, exactly. I, I remember uh, like as things were going well with, with Hereditary, I was just like, I know I have cancer. It's like, that, that has to be what it is. Like, well, there, there was a story that Kubrick would have someone drive in front of him and behind him at 30 miles an hour because he was so certain he was going to get in a car wreck in the middle of making a movie and never get to complete it. I know. Oh, I was just like, oh, this is it. I'm going to die. We had a good day of shooting. My first thought is, fuck, I'm going to die now. Yeah. And that's all that's going to be left. Yeah. Yeah, there, it can't, there, like, nothing's free, you know? If something's working, then something else is around the corner. You feel like there's a balance of good and sinister forces. You're like, oh, this is, I'm in an idyllic location. This is great. Someone's going to die. Ooh, the and evil of, forces. And of course, it is actually inevitable. Like, we are ultimately doomed. It's just, just how long do we have to enjoy that not hasn't happened yet. Life is just a series of like enjoying enjoying things between horrible disasters that are ultimately going to happen to all of us. Yes. The podcast version of this is going to be great. Yeah, it'll be weird, but that's fine. Um, I need to wrap up soon, but I want to ask you about a couple of other films here. Great, please. First of all, can you tell me about your experience? You mentioned Carrie before. uh, What is it about Carrie that's what so unsettling where's its power coming from well i mean you were mentioning earlier the ambivalent mother and you're asking if that was the final taboo and of course how could it be right because what is medea if not that Uh, but for me i can't imagine a better mom from hell than piper laurie and and carrie and and that film really disturbed me as a kid because of that it was also Sissy SpaceX performance, but Piper Laurie in that film is really amazing. And it, that film really traumatized me. And I, you know, I did that thing where if you're walking through a dark house, you know, and you have to go to the bathroom, I just would project onto all the dark walls, you know, like images from Carrie. Um, and I would just have to, you know, bolt through the house to get to my bed. I first saw it when I was like 12, maybe 11. I didn't return to that until I was in my mid twenties, maybe. And, uh, I still found it very, very scary, but I was shocked at how... I mean, I shouldn't have been shocked because, because it's De Palma, but it was very campy. Almost always the case with De Palma, especially like Sisters, if you go back to that. I could really point at anything. Uh, I mean, and High Mom, of course, which is really brilliant, sharp-edged satire. But it's so campy and really self-aware. But with Carrie, more than anything, you have the set piece at the prom. What De Palma does better than anybody is, is the set piece, and, and he's just so great at shot sequencing and he admits that you know that for him it's it's all about hitchcock and hitchcock is like you know it's pretty much it for him and as a student of hitchcock he's extremely apt and and brilliant and um i feel like you know the tongue is always in the cheek more with de palma than it ever was with hitchcock really although the tongue was always you know in the cheek with with hitchcock but it but it wasn't quite so pronounced and then of course with hitchcock you have at the end of his career, he's making Frenzy, right? Which is where, where he's able to finally make an exploitation film because suddenly you're allowed to do that. Whereas for so long, he had to restrain himself. I feel like De Palma for so long was just devoting his career to, to doing what Hitchcock was only able to do with Frenzy, really. And it's up to you to decide whether that's a step up or, or if something was gained by having to withhold because he was able to do a lot, you know, while still kind of meeting the demands of the board of decency, right? Because, um, you know, even in, in The Birds, you have the eyes that have been pecked out, which is horrifying. And how he got away with Psycho is, like, mystifying to me, in, you know, in 1960. But prom scene is just really muscular filmmaking. Like, just what he's doing with the camera is so exciting. You know, even when they're dancing and the camera's revolving around them and it start, just starts spinning out of control, it, it, it shouldn't work. And it's, it's really uncanny. 
And he does, I mean, all those effects he kind of repeats later, like the fury, he goes even crazier with that. And you also have a girl being crowned queen in some very evil circumstance. Yeah. You know, in Midsummer, she's crowned the, the May Queen, and in Carrie, she's crowned the Prom Queen. Right. And evil is evil, you know, Piper Laurie, with a, the terror of, like, you know, using the Christianity to go so far that it's like sick, good and evil are battling. It's oh, interesting how both films kind of, there's strains of Carrie, this kind of DNA of Carrie in, in Midsommar. Yeah, yeah, and, and in Hereditary. And I guess Hereditary has some of the fury in it too, with that wire scene is very, I mean, I, but again, that's, that's something that occurred to me in retrospect, but, but it makes sense because those films really, really got into my head when I was young. Like, was Carrie one of those movies that got into you? Carrie was the movie that, that fucked me up as a kid. Uh, Carrie and Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Those two films like, really, really affected me very deeply. I couldn't sleep for years because of those two films and the imagery in those films. I need to ask you quickly now about uh, David Lynch, in particular Racerhead and The Elephant Man. So. Okay. Uh, I mean, ooh. David Lynch, I love him so much. The sound design, the way you use sound design, kind of going into the egg and the spaceship is hereditary. It's really similar uses. It's Lynchian. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Lynch is just one of those who, he opens the medium up for you, you know? Like, you, you watch a Lynch film and you realize, oh, like, there's so much that can be done. His stuff is so textural, and it's so... What he's always done with sound design. I mean, not just, you know, since Eraserhead, but since his shorts. I'm not sure how much of that was opened up for him by Alan Split, but it's so exciting. And what he was doing with ambient sound and, and just, I mean, it's, it's really unlike anything I've seen from anybody else. And there are a lot of imitators, but, you know. Yeah, you can still run one of his films. You know immediately who it is. You know, you know immediately who it is. He has Alan Split's ashes in his mixing stage. Wow. <laughs> Under the floor. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I mean... I mean the mood, the way, the way his control of tone... Yeah, you have, but you have something similar in your movies to control of time. What, what lessons have oh, thank you taken you. from that film or from uh, Lynch's early work? The Elephant Man was, I guess, his first, you know, his his first Hollywood movie, right? Which is so funny to think about because it's, I mean, it's amazing. It was nominated for all those Oscars. I know that Mel Brooks is the one who who gave him that job, which is another reason I love Mel Brooks, who also is is responsible for Cronenberg doing The Fly. So Mel Brooks is he's the best, but. Um, that that film is filled with uncanny stuff. The opening with the uh, the woman being ravaged by the elephant and the just her head kind of going back and forth with the uh, what do you call it? It's that thing that Wong Kar Wai does in post. I'm forgetting. But the sound design there is incredible. And then the end of the film is like really startling, which becomes like I mean it's it, it's no surprise like that the ending of of Elephant Man is like this like cosmic thing because they always are. I mean, especially just the fact that he was able to bring industrial sensibility to, like that like factory feeling. You know, he talks so much about Philadelphia being his greatest influence and like what he saw in Philadelphia, he clearly brought to Eraserhead in that like Dickensian world. At heart, it's, you know, it's the same thing as like the miracle worker, right? But it's really, his signature is all over it. And it's really, that movie's on another planet. Lynch, in, in particularly in that film, I mean, probably in everything, but uh, it's it's a combination of the, the visual and uh, sound design is gorgeous and singular, but also it's coupled with this emotional core that's pretty overpowering, obviously yeah. because he's got, you know, John Hurt and... John Gielgud. Yeah. And Gielgud and uh, Anne Bancroft. And, and Anthony Hopkins, who I guess he had a hard time with. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's something to say, but... Yeah, Elephant Man is just really wonderful. And it's wonderful that he doesn't betray... You know, the film needs to be moving. It ultimately is like the miracle worker or the wild child or, you know, it's, it could so easily be, you know, quite hokey. Not that I, I, I like the wild child, but somehow it's just as moving as it needs to be. It's like a total Hollywood animal, you know. It, it does the work where it's like this aspirational thing but it's also it's vivid and textural and like strange in the same way that all of his films are and that's what's so exciting about that film is the fact that somehow his signature wasn't diminished at all in one movie his name became an adjective you know lynchian yeah exactly
And last thing, your thoughts on Eraserhead. The world building in that film is really unlike anything else except for maybe other Lynch films. But The Lady in the Radiator really shouldn't work. Like there's something just, you know, so much of, of Lynch is sort of like deliberately wrong, which he does a lot of in Twin Peaks The Return. And it's just wrong in the right way. And then, of course, the ending where he kills the baby and I guess he transcends, right? And then he's embraced by the lady in the radiator. I mean, every time I see that film, I'm shocked at that ending because it seems to rush at you and just knock the wind out of you. And I think one reason it works so well is because the rest of the film is so lethargic and so drawn out. And it's very musical and it's cutting and and in its rhythm, it's just really extremely slow but if you give yourself over to it it's like totally enveloping in a way that even only in the return which he did recently like has he made something quite as challenging as as a racer head just as far as like the patience it demands of the viewer my favorite is blue velvet and mulholland drive like those for me are the perfect like emblems and I know he says that Eraserhead is his most spiritual film, and that makes a lot of sense to me, but in a way that you can't really can't ar- articulate, and he yeah. certainly won't, yeah. And that's our interview with the master of disaster, Ari Aster. Join us next time for an entertaining chat with Rob Zombie, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror and Cups. <laughs>